Christ Forming the Church is Dr. Joel Hunter's series, and he continues with his sixth message, In Apostles' Doctrine. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter's text is taken from Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and it reads as follows. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And now, let's join Dr. Joel Hunter for his sixth message entitled, In Apostles' Doctrine, as he continues his series, Christ Forming the Church. Well, it's been a couple of weeks, so let me kind of update you where we are in the context of our preaching sermon, our preaching series, rather. Uh, We're talking this whole year about building relationships and how God forms relationships for His purpose. And we are talking in this particular part of the year about how He has put the church together for His purposes. We're going back to the original church and we are seeing how God did that. Now, I'm going to be preaching for the next four weeks on one verse. That's how much there is in this particular verse. Because when God put the church together, He did not do it in a random way. He he built it upon four foundational, foundational pillars of strength. The first of those pillars is His eternal truth. It is something that is larger than any personal opinion. Now, we're going to have a little uh, sketch this morning to help you kind of come into the mood of this message. I want to explain to you at the beginning, this is a little bit different sketch than we usually have. Usually, we have uh, some uh, brilliant writer who will uh, remain unnamed and anonymous, uh, who sits in the worship committee and listens to the conversation and the spirit of the conversation and then listens to the Lord and puts together a scenario that kind of expresses uh, the direction we believe the Lord's going to take us. This particular uh, drama, though, is a recounting of an actual conversation that happened within the last two weeks between a person in this church and one of her friends. And so... As you listen to this, I want you to ask yourselves two questions. First, what is it that Karen's mother seems to be so afraid of? Second, what is it that Karen seems to have a growing curiosity about? Hint, it's the same answer. Listen. Leslie, I am really sorry about that. That's all right. Uh, I just didn't expect that phone call to last quite that long. Who was it? Uh, my mother. How is she? Mothery. Uh, I, I told her that I was going to go to this yoga retreat, and she had a total fit. Uh, does she have a problem with the underlying spiritual side to yoga? No, she has a problem with the underlying spiritual side to anything. Really? Yeah. Uh, she's a totally religiously zealous atheist. Oh, she just she just goes completely nuts if I even look at something that's remotely spiritual. Oh, she's always saying that religions are cults and you have to keep your mind free and totally free from all of their influences. Wow. How do you feel about that? Well, she frustrates me, but 
I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I really appreciate her. She really cares about my mind and my freedom. And, and I've seen some friends of mine get totally bogged down by guilt and totally trapped by their religions. I mean, it's like they can't even have a thought on their own sometimes. They're always saying, well, we believe, or our pastor says, or Rush Limbaugh says. <laughs> I mean, really, it's... I'm sorry. Um, hmm. Was I being rude? No. Oh, gosh. I'm sorry. You go to a church, don't you? Yes. <sighs> I'm sorry. No, I, no, no. Well, it is frustrating because sometimes I, I do feel like there's more than just the temporal. Oh, yeah, there is. Okay. <laughs> well, what church do you go to? Well, it's a non-denominational Christian church. Hmm. Christian. Well... That's pretty religious. Religious is kind of a tough word. Mm -hmm. Do you go to church every Sunday? Yeah. Do you believe in heaven and hell? Yes. Do you believe that sex before marriage is a sin? Yes. No, no, no buts, Leslie. That's what you believe, so that is your religion. You believe that the only way to be saved is through Jesus, right? Yes, but again, that's... Leslie, look, I mean... It is fine if you need to subscribe to a major religion, but you have to realize that they're just going to tell you how to live and what to think and how to believe and how to act and how to get to heaven. And You, you just have to admit that your life is going to be totally constricted by those rules. Oh, Karen, my belief is not based on those rules. The rules are an outcome of my beliefs. It's true that Christianity has really put the cart before the horse. And it, it seems from the outside that Christians say, if you follow these rules, Jesus will save you. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that after Jesus has saved you, some changes will emerge in your life that you will love. Mm -hmm. See? Change. Religion wants to change who you are. You just told me five minutes ago you want to change who you are. (sighs) How weak I am. Yeah. I mean, I want to be strong. I want to be a woman that runs with the wolves. I mean, historically, the church has always set up rules to control people. I mean, please, Christianity is not big on strong women. Yeah. Ruth, Mary, Esther, those are some weak women. Okay, who are they? All right. (laughs) Well, Esther, for example, she was a devout Jew, Mm -hmm. and then she was chosen to be the bride of the king of Persia or something. Now, the king was not a Jew. And at that time, one of his aides issued an edict to kill all the Jews in the land because they wouldn't bow down and worship him. Now, Esther knew that she had to make a stand for her people. But also at that time, if the queen approached the king without being requested first, it was certain death for her unless he had mercy on her. But she realized that she was part of a bigger plan, so she risked her life to do it. Her uncle put it beautifully. He said, Do not think that you alone of all the Jews will be saved because you live in the king's house. If you remain silent, deliverance will come for the Jews from someplace. But you and your father's family will surely perish. And who knows? Perhaps it is just for this reason that you have been brought to the kingdom. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what happened to her? Well, she made herself really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Good idea. (laughs) (laughs) And then she approached the king with purpose and respect, and she intrigued him by telling him that she had a request, but that she would ask him later. Okay, yeah, that is strong. That yeah. Is... Oh, yeah, and it works out perfectly. The Jews are saved, and actually the aide ends up getting killed. Wow. 
But the thing is that that beauty and wisdom and strength were hers, but she relied on the source of them, which is God. I mean, she knew that she was the one that had to act, but she knew that she was not alone. Karen, that is so comforting. Yeah. Well, I guess it would be. Oh, yeah, like Peter. When, when Christ died, Peter was crushed. I mean, they were really, really close. And then just before he was killed, Peter completely betrayed Christ. He let him down. He failed him. And he must have just felt like such a loser. But then three days later, he saw the risen Christ. And Christ invited Peter to share in an eternal relationship with him. And now that strength was Peter's to share. The strength of the creator of the universe was Peter's to share in. That's the kind of relationship that we try to have here, but it's the relationship Christ wants with us. He wants to free us. I'm sorry, I just... I never even thought or heard of religion as being about relationship or freedom. I just yeah. I just can't imagine religion outside of its rules. Do you know what I... Yeah, well, I try not to think of the rules outside of the Lord. You want some more coffee? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you know, if you want, you can um, tell me about Sarah. Yeah, that's a good one. (laughs) Actual conversation. Now, let me ask you again. What do you think it was that Karen's mother was so afraid of and that Karen had a growing curiosity about? Let me tell you what I think it was. I think it was truth that was larger than a person. It is that that I want to talk about today because that is one of the foundations of the church. That is one of the pillars upon which the church was built. If you will turn in your scriptures, if you have them with you, to the second chapter of Acts, we will see the forming of the first church. And I'm just going to read two verses. The first one for context and the second one just for the introduction of the, of the subject. Verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves. Now, now, listen to that. They were continually devoting themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, or doctrine, didica, doctrine. And by this we mean the accurate interpretation of the life of Christ and the Word of God. The summation of that. Secondly, to fellowship. Thirdly, to the bread. And fourthly, to the prayers. Now, let's talk about the weakness of today's church because we have ignored that very first thing. First of all, we don't really like to think in terms of having someone who is master over us, who knows more than we do, who will teach us a set pattern of doctrine. There is something in the rugged individualism of this country, there's something in the age in which we live, that that constricts our freedom. There are two things we don't like about it. First, we don't like having anybody over us. And second, 
We don't like the whole thought of doctrine and that there's just one set of truths that you know and that's that. Let's address each of those in turn. First of all, let's talk about the rebellion most of us have inside about listening to authorities. This last couple of weeks I've been on vacation and and, uh, we went up north and landed on relatives. It's cheap and it's free and and it's it's fun. You know, we have fun relatives. And we um, brought my dad up. He was a He's approaching his middle 80s and, and uh, just loves to talk. And, and because he enjoys conversation so much, I enjoy conversation with him. I'm not a great conversationalist, but for someone who really enjoys it, then it, it kind of helps you enjoy it. And, and we just talked for days. In the midst of that talk, I began to wonder, why have I not talked to this man before? He's an absolute joy to talk with. Why, when I lived with him all of those years, did I not spend day after day in conversation with him, listening to him? It's not him that was reluctant, it was me. And then I remembered. I was a teenager. Teenagers don't like to talk to authority figures. As a matter of fact, I was such an egotistical teenager, I thought I had it all figured out. As a matter of fact, if he and his whole generation would just move out of the way, I could fix the world. And so there was this absolute resistance to the wisdom and the joy and the relationship that was before me with somebody who knew much more than I knew. And I spent a lot of wasted years in that. You can carry that all the way in a spectrum from just not having all that you can have to that particular trait being your absolute defeat. This week I watched uh, on television, as some of you must have uh, the the uh, documentary about uh, Hitler and Stalin. I'm a history buff. I love to, to watch those kinds of docu- documentaries. You know, probably the single most damaging trait that Adolf Hitler had was his inability to ever listen to anybody authoritative outside of himself. I mean, this man was so egotistical, such a megalomaniac that that he intimidated all of those around him not to bring him bad news, even when that bad news was real. Here was a man who had everything going for him, all of the charisma, all of the power, all the mentality of a nation, who had the power literally to win a war, and he was defeated because repeatedly he would not listen to the truth that was unpleasant to him and therefore address the world as it was. I want to tell you, we're not much different. Most of us like to build our own little worlds. We don't like to listen to things that are unpleasant to our ears. We don't like to place somebody in authority over us because they may know something that we don't know. They do know more than we know. That wasn't like the first church. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were doing that because the Spirit was to be teachable. They admitted their own ignorance. They admitted the fact that they didn't know very much, and they wanted to learn. And in doing so, they were wise. Admitting their ignorance, they were wise. Cato the Elder has said this, Wise men learn more from fools than fools do from wise men. There is a teachableness. I want you to understand that we live in a culture 
that doesn't want to put anybody above us. We want our opinion to be just as good as anybody else's. Listen to all the talk shows. That is exactly the manifestation of the culture in which we live. My opinion is as good as this person, as good as this person, and so on and so forth, and you never come to the truth. You're ever learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth, as the Bible would say. That is the format of the talk show. That is the mentality of the age. When I went to seminary, it was in the early 70s. And just coming out of the 60s, you know, the 60s, for those of you who weren't around, <laughs> were just, oh, peace and joy and love and community and touchy-feely and, you know, but the big thing was questioning authority. The big, the big mood of the 60s was rebellion. By the time I got to seminary, I did not go to a seminary that I would choose again. By the time I got to this seminary that was on track intellectually but way off base spiritually, all, practically all of the faculty was infected with the spirit of the 60s. Question authority. There's still, by the way, some holdout 60s people around with that on their bumper sticker. Which is okay. You can question authority. That's okay. But living as if there were no authority is not. And so the majority, the great majority of the professors in this seminary, when they made paper uh, assignments of their papers, they would say, what I want you to do is go at this idea and I want you to take it personally and respond to it personally and tell it how it affects your life and, and give me your opinion. I really want you to put yourself into this paper so that we can really know who you are and you can express what you believe. That's how all of them did except one professor. Dr. S. Marion Smith, I'll never forget him as long as I live. He was a New Testament professor. He was the only evangelical left on campus. Couldn't fire him, he had tenure. He must have been 80 years old. This guy couldn't have weighed 100 pounds. I still remember him walking, going down the hall. It looked like Yoda. He was going down the hall. He had about 400 books in his hands, and he'd go down the halls, and he'd go in his classroom. I took every class this man offered. He'd go in his classroom and he'd get behind a table and he'd sit down. He always taught from the rabbinic position. You know, he sat down to teach. He'd open up the New Testament. And he'd just glance at what page he was on and then he'd begin to recite it. He didn't need to read it to us. He'd begin to recite it. And then he'd tell us what the scholars had said and how they had helped him understand this text. And, and he'd be, about, about every class, he'd, he'd start to cry because it meant so much. It touched his heart so much. Well, I'll never forget the first time he assigned a paper to us. You know, students never change. They still do this in seminary. They want to know what you want on the paper. Just so they can give you what you want. You know, forget, you know, you know, attacking the thing. And, and, and they want to know what your requirement is, what you're looking for, so they can give you that, so they can get a grade. And that's exactly where we were. This particular class... Uh, this particular class happened to be all men. Uh, most of us were fresh out of college, but there were a scattering of 40 and 50 year old guys in there. So we started asking questions. And, and when he assigned this text for us to exegete, he, he said, uh, uh, I want you to, I want you to take thoroughly this text and develop it and so on and so forth. And we started asking questions. What well, do you want us to, to take it personally? What it means to our personal lives? Do you want us to form our opinion about this text? I'll never forget this. Here's this little guy, and he began to smile. And it wasn't a condescending smile. It was just a smile. He leaned forward and he said, Boys, again, not condescending because we had older students in the class. He, he was just accurately 
gauging our theological maturity. Lean forward and said, boys, I, uh, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but you don't know enough yet to have an opinion that is of any value whatsoever. <laughs> we were totally insulted. He looked at us and he said, I want you to thoroughly research the reputable scholars about this passage so that I know that as you reproduce that for me, that is in your brain. I want you to sit and soak wisdom from the ancients about this passage so that when you give it back to me, I know that's in the mix. And then he said something. Form an opinion as you mature that is of help to other people instead of being just an expression of your own private little world. Now, there's something there, isn't there? There's something there for us who live in an age that confuses people's equal worth with people's opinions as being of equal value. Those are two different things. Not everybody's opinion is of equal value because there's such a thing as fact. And there's such a thing as right and wrong and accuracy and inaccuracy. And so therefore, not everybody's opinion is of equal value. We live in an age where we theologize out of our needs. Where we take what we need and paint it into God. There's a passage in Psalm 51 where God says, You thought I was just like you. We do that. We theologize in the wrong way, believing that if we can create some sort of God, we'll get some sort of personal help. It is just the opposite. We can only get help from a truth that is true for everybody. There's only that kind of strength. We have theologians in this culture that we celebrate, not the least of which is Shirley MacLaine. Great, Shirley had an experience, now let's all believe that. We are so amorphous. We are so weak in our doctrinal understanding because we refuse to listen to those who know more than we do. Believing along with the culture that our opinion counts just as much as the rest. But Dr. Smith knew the biblical pattern of teaching, which was to hand understanding down from generation to generation, from mature teacher to disciple. He had seen, for example, in Exodus chapter 24, God called Moses. And this is what it says in verse 12. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. Sure enough, Moses went off and he relayed that teaching. He had been with God. He had listened to God. And he relayed that teaching to the people. And then he told those who were in charge of religious instruction in the home to do the same thing. See the pattern? He said in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 and 7. Now this is the commandment. This is Moses talking. This is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you 
that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it. And then he talks a little bit about their children and their grandchildren. And look what he says in verses 6 and 7. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You see the pattern. The pattern of our learning. The pattern of the apostles to the first people in the church. And the people who were willing to humble themselves and say, I don't know. I don't have a strong theology. I don't know. I'm in danger. I need to learn. They had the same comment that the Ethiopian eunuch had. When Philip saw this man passing by, trying to, to read Scripture, he was trying to read the book of Isaiah. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 8, verse 30, it says this, And when Philip had run up, he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? Let me ask you that question. When you pick up this book, do you understand what you're reading? Let me follow up with the Ethiopian eunuch's response, which is appropriate to us all. He said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? Are we so much smarter than this person that we need no one else to guide us? I want to tell you, I sit every day at the feet of the apostles. I sit every day learning from someone who knows more than I do, whether it be through book or tape or actual teaching. Every day, I put myself under someone who knows more about the gospel, who has spent more time with the Lord, who has heard from him in ways that I haven't heard from him. I need that. I can't understand this book without that. Can you? You see, because if we have that, then we have a good entry into the second part of our difficulty, which is doctrine. Many of us are like Karen's mother. We are afraid that if we have this set of things that that is true for everyone, we're going to exclude people and hurt their feelings and, and crush their freedom and so on and so forth. It is absolutely amazing to me to read in U.S. News and World Report in April that 80% of this country believes that the Bible is, in this, is the inspired Word of God. Now, that, is, that amazes me. They really believe God wrote this book. But 48% of those, listen to this, believe that no one set of right and wrong is any better than any other set of right and wrong. Now, how can you believe both those things at the same time? That, that really bothers me. How can you believe that God has delivered His Word for you, but yet when it comes to right and wrong, nobody's got the answer? A survey that Barna did not too long ago. 3,800 church kids. These are our youth. In that survey, 57% of them were not persuaded that there was any such thing as an objective standard for truth. Over half of the Christian kids growing up in this society were not sure that there was a truth that applied to everyone. You know what that does? That divides us into two camps. That means that many people are coming to church not for doctrine but for dogma. You know what dogma is? It's having our own little religious opinions reinforced. As a matter of fact, Dr. Smith used to tell us, boys, 
You think you're going out there to teach the world that is so hungry for new knowledge. Let me tell you what people will be looking for when they come to church. People will be looking to have what they already believe affirmed by you. People don't come to learn. People come to be affirmed. 25 years later, I see that he's right in the majority of cases. Because it makes us uncomfortable to admit our ignorance. It makes us uncomfortable to hear bad news. But let me pose this to you. Does it do you any good not to hear bad news? Does it do any of us any good to take refuge in our own opinions? The answer is no. You know why? Because wrong is still wrong, and wrong will take you down no matter what you think of it. Whether you think it's right or wrong, if it's wrong, it's going to take you down. You can line up and try to jump over a river. If there is a six-foot span between the banks and you jump five and a half feet, you're still in the water. You know, I hear people say, well, you know, we can get an approximate truth. I can be about right. Anytime you hear that word about, substitute the word wrong for it. Because almost right is wrong. Now, I'm not being a perfectionistic about this. I'm saying there's truth and there's untruth. And if it's not truth, it's untruth. That's just logical. You might as well roll off the bank into the water and forget the effort you put into the jump if you're not going to be right. You might as well forget it. It is so important for us to realize that taking refuge in this kind of... Now, 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 now be careful here. I, I don't want to say the wrong thing. And, and, but... but this psychotherapeutic model of what my needs are, there is some value to that realizing what we need emotionally. But that does not transfer onto theology. Because right is right and wrong is wrong no matter what you need. And there is a whole objective standard of truth that if you don't cooperate, it'll break you. Because that's just how truth is. And there's this whole danger that we put ourselves into that if we think that what we believe is just coming together and getting so many to people to believe what we believe, and that's all that counts, what's well, helpful to me. Oh, it really helped me out. I mean, it's good for me. Works for me. If we really believe that's all that counts, we are by all people most vulnerable to every charlatan that comes along. This week we celebrated the 25th anniversary of the landing on the moon reminded me that on the day that they first stepped foot on the moon, somebody in India had had a vision that Jesus Christ had come to them and had transferred to them the role of being Jesus Christ. Well, I thought that was pretty comical. Until I read of these people in America who started going over and worshiping this guy. And there were people in Germany. And then there were people in France. Why did they do that? Because they didn't have a basis of strong doctrine. They didn't know what was real and what wasn't. We just 20 people just came back from Russia from this congregation. The good news is absolutely the Russian people are absolutely open to spiritual things. The bad news is they'll believe anything. I mean, if you go teach reincarnation, they'll believe it. You go teach Jesus says they'll believe that Jesus didn't cry, they'll believe that they'll believe it. They're so open to the Spirit. Why? Because they don't any have, have any foundation to tell what's truth and what's not truth. 
they're not built up in strong doctrine, so they have no discernment. I want to tell you, this book claims to be true, and not just true for those who believe it, true for everybody. Now let me give you the alternative. Either it is what it says, or it's a piece of trash. Or it's a lying to you. I mean, it's, it's the same thing with Jesus Christ. I've told you before. Jesus claimed to be God. Everybody understood that. When he said, before Abraham was, I am, that's a claim of divinity. It's what got him crucified. When I hear people say, well, he's a nice guy, he's a good teacher, that isn't one of the alternatives. When you claim to be God, you either are, there's three choices. You're either a liar, C.S. Lewis says, in that you claim to be God and you know you're not God, or you're a lunatic. You claim to be God and think you're God, but you're not God. Or you're the Lord. Those are the only three choices there are. There are no choices. He's a nice guy. He's a good teacher. There is no choice with Scripture. That says, oh, it's a good book. It's helpful to me. No. Listen, if this book isn't true, and if it isn't true for anybody, everybody is not true for anybody. And it is of no value. Except for a little psychological massage from time to time. No, we need to understand that what God gives us is a faith that is so strong that it is truth and those who rely on it will be helped and those who go against it will be broken. It is truth that doesn't need our defense and we need to come to it and not defend it and not try to mold it, just learn it. Just understand it. When Martin Luther withdrew from the Roman Catholic Church, King Henry VIII was trying to get brownie points. He was trying to get a, a divorce, so he wanted to get in good with the Pope. And so, so he wrote this edict against, against Martin Luther. The Pope, in return, bestowed up, uh, upon him the title Defender of the Faith. Oh, it just pleased him no end. He was such an egotistical person. And he walked into his court, and the jester was there. They still had court jesters back then. And the jester says, pray, my king, why are you smiling? King Henry VIII said, because the Pope has conferred upon me the title Defender of the Faith. And the jester looked at him and said, oh, my king, I'm a man, and you're a man. You defend me, and I'll defend you, but let the faith defend itself. In other words, there are some things that don't need defense. They are strong in themselves. They don't need us to come along and say, plead, you know, for, for the case. They just need for us to understand what they really say. What they're really saying. It's the truth. It's the truth for everybody. It doesn't depend on our opinion. What happens to a church when they are built up in strong doctrine? First of all, they become differentiated from an amorphous blob. John MacArthur, I like how John says this. John says strong doctrine is the skeleton of the church. It gives the church the form and strength it needs to move. He says that a high view of God, the absolute authority of Scripture and strong doctrine gives the church a skeleton, the skeleton that it needs. Now what happens when we have strong doctrine in the church? Two things come to mind. First of all, you have absolute confidence, not in yourself anymore. You don't have to have confidence in yourself anymore. You have confidence in God because you know what you believe. And you know that you believe in Him and you know that you'll never be adequate and He always will. And so you don't have to build yourself up anymore. You don't have to be perfect anymore because your confidence is in the right place. It's in God. 
And you know what you believe and you can be free about what you believe. It's not anything you've done. It's something you've recognized as true. I told a story once in a while, sometimes at funerals, about a little boy standing fishing on the banks of the Mississippi. Little cane pole, little pole, little bag of worms. And about 100 yards up the stream, there's an old guy, modern rod and reel, you know, lures, fishing. And around the bend comes this beautiful, huge paddle boat. And the little boy just starts jumping up and down and waving and shouting. I mean, the paddle boat's way out there, jumping up and down, waving and shouting, here I am, here I am, come get me. You know? The old man looks at him and says, Son, quiet down, you're irritating me. He is not to be dissuaded. He just continues to jump and shout and wave his arms. Here I am, come get me. The paddle boat's going. The old man says, Will you shut up? You're scaring the fish and you're getting on my nerves. Little boy just keeps jumping and shouting and waving. And the guy's just about ready to come down for him and say, Will you cut it out? Those people don't even know who you And this paddle boat just turns, comes in towards the shore, just stops short of that shore and lowers a gangplank right at the feet of that little boy. Picks up his cane pole, picks up his worms, gets halfway up that gangplank, turns that old man and says, I forgot to tell you, the captain of this ship is my father. And we're going to a new home down the river. Now, that is a recognition of the character of God and your place in the universe. It wasn't because he shouted to something alien and something alien came to serve him. He recognized the relationship he had in God. And that's what happens when we are saved by the grace of God and accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We recognize the relationship. That's our connection, not what we've done, what God's done. But the other thing that happens in a church, and I'll close with this, is that it becomes free. You know, the Bible says the truth will set you free. It's what the, the, the ladies were talking about here. There's a freedom. The, the, the rules are, are, are just normal behavior when you become a Christian, when you become mature in the faith. But what you experience is the freedom when you have strong doctrine in the church, when you know what you believe, and I would challenge you to, to study Scripture and to get the books that will give you the basic theology that you need, I would challenge you to take life training courses. I would challenge you to sit at the feet every day of somebody who knows more than you do so that you can be trained in the things of the Lord. Let me tell you what will happen. You'll be less and less pressured to have a religion that's relevant... Now, that word gets to me. Relevant. Let's be irrelevant to today. Let me tell you something. If it didn't mean anything in history and it's not going to mean anything in the future, it doesn't mean anything today. If it wasn't true then and it won't be true again, it's not true now. And what you have is something that's realistic but not long-term helpful. So it doesn't matter whether we're singing a peppy song or we're singing a somber you know, uh, church him. The form doesn't matter. Only the truth matters. And that's what we need to stand on. We need to stand on the eternal truth of God, which is found in the Word of God. 
And what happens to a church then is there's absolute freedom. You don't have to worship according to formula. You don't have to worry that you haven't done something right. For people who have strong... As a matter of fact, this is in the Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. It talks about those who, are, uh, who have kind of a false religion. One of the adversary. And look what it says. It says, One whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all the power and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness. You see the emphasis on the sensualness of worship, on how much it means to me, how much it grabs me, how relevant it is to my life. Signs and wonders, boy, that's something that scoops us all up, isn't it? Well, you can have signs and wonders. And they can be false or they can be true. But they're not what determines how much help it is. What determines how much help it is is the sound doctrine. Listen to this. With all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. When you have the love of the truth and the Holy Spirit is let loose in your congregation. <laughs> let loose. Holy Spirit doesn't need to be let anything. Holy Spirit takes over when you have sound doctrine. You don't need to worry about how sensual or non-sensual your worship service is. You don't need to be afraid of anything. You don't have to have an altar call in order for people to get saved. People get saved in their seats. They say, gosh, that makes sense. I think I'm going to invite Jesus into my life. And that happens. You don't have to say, oh, we don't have an altar call. Nobody gets saved. You don't have to blow on people for them to get healed. That's okay if you want to blow on people. I'll blow on people every once in a while. No, I won't either. But I, will, I do lay hands on them. And I do annoy them. It's okay. But that's not what heals them. What heals them is that God has been active. We had a lady right down here not some time ago had a horrible back injury. We weren't even talking about healing. We were just going through a regular worship service. God just healed her in her seat. She hasn't had a bit of back problem since. We weren't even, we weren't even paying attention. But the Holy Spirit was moving through the congregation, and it just happened. See? It wasn't according to our formula of worship. It had everything to do with knowing and approaching truths about God, and so God healed. You don't have to laugh your head off in order to have the joy of the Lord and roll around. Now, you can do that. You don't need to be afraid of it. It's okay if that's what you want to do or that's your reaction. It doesn't matter either way. God will do whatever he wants to do in your life if you have sound doctrine, if you know what you believe. Because God is given access to you through that. So let me challenge you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pray and then we're going to end with a song. But let me challenge you. It is so important that ye not be ignorant, my brethren, it is so important that we not remain as children, as Ephesians 4 says, to be tossed by every wind of doctrine, to wonder what we believe and wonder if things are true. No, to build a strong church, we have to be built just like the original church was built. And that is to listen daily to those who know more than we are, who are more mature than we are in the Lord, whether it be by tape or by book or personally. We need to go through that to build our understanding of the things of God and then you will experience freedom and you will see him work in ways that you never have before pray with me God even as we come to you and ask you to build into our lives theological maturity help us to understand that that 
will release us then to approach you on a totally relational basis. Help us to remember that all of the objective truth in the universe was come together in one person, Jesus Christ, and that in him all things hold together and that he has made himself available for us. Father, if there's anybody in here right now who has never invited him into their heart, they can do that right now. By letting him pay for their sins and saying, God, I'm not adequate, but I want you to come and live in my life. If there are others who have said, God, I want you, but I'll just kind of find, I'll kind of form my own opinions about you. Because it's just too much work to study and to read the Bible and, 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 you know, get the basics of theology. So if you don't mind, I'll just kind of, just kind of put you as the man upstairs. Oh God. Help them to see how weak and vulnerable that position is. Help us all to see that and grow us into a mature church that has confidence in you because we know the Word of God and the truth therein. We pray this in Jesus' name.